0: Good luck, Johnny boy.
1: Welcome back. It's episode one hundred and forty-nine of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the Faculty Lounge of the Epstein and Hughes School of Law, recently reaccredited by the Estonian Bar Association. I'm your host, Troy Sinek. Former White House speechwriter, co-founder of and Key Media, and composer of the as yet unstaged Gomer Pyle The Musical. And I am joined, as always, by the Hall and Oates of the Conservative Legal Movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch, Professor of Law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Emmanuel S. Heller, Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Gentlemen, welcome back. We haven't talked for a bit. It's been like six or seven weeks, so catch me up. The single most interesting thing you've done during that time, and John, I will start with you because last time we talked, I think you were just about to go
2: out and shoot guns in the Nevada desert. Oh, wow. That was a while ago. That wasn't so exciting, I have to say, because there's nothing to shoot at. It was just desert. I mean, just shooting, you hit sand. They got to do something. They got to upgrade in Vegas. (laughs) But you know what was neat was uh, I was staying in Vegas for the Claremont Institute. They run these summer programs and they were having um, the NBA Summer League, which I'd never really heard of before. I guess that's when all the rookies and the new players play. And so there were three NBA teams staying in my hotel. So, two things I learned was one, um, these people are humongous. Like, there were people who I think were two feet taller than me. Yeah. And then yes. the other thing is, each one of these guys has this whole entourage. Um, but the great part was, I was going to work out at the hotel gym, and I saw some of these NBA players using the same pitiful old rusted machines that I was using. John's? That made me feel good.
0: I mean, <laughs> these people are unreal. I could still recall <laughs> staying at a hotel in San Antonio where the visiting team, the Indiana Pacers, came in. And as they walked into the thing to sit down, everybody just kind of turned and up utter disbelief. They realized that they were the same species that we are, uh, but they look so different it really couldn't be imagined. It's not just the height, it's the gait, it's the body fat, it's everything else. And I have these fantasies of going one-on-one against LeBron James and stuffing him, and I realize I'm a couple of years too old to be able to achieve that anymore. As to me, I live a (laughs) life of consummate dullness in many ways, in which the only joyous things that come into my life are the efforts of others. And so this past weekend. Uh, My uh, granddaughter, Bella Pianco, uh, had her belated uh, bat mitzvah party, which is 18 months after the official event took place. And so many people were so happy to be outside and to do all the dancing and the singing and so forth, that even a curmudgeon like myself, who can't take all of the sound, uh, really was moved by the kind of occasion. So uh, I don't have to tell people about refinancing houses or trying to fix the dents on cars. I don't think they want to hear about it. Uh, we're going to answer all of the questions. <laughs> intellectually uh if somebody asked you know what is your academic right, right writing papers and all the rest of it, i said if you want to watch me do that you could either do that or watch grass grow they're about the same level of excitement
1: <laughs> You're really kind of setting up this Walter Mitty vision of yourself, Richard. You're hanging out at Bot mitzvahs, but fantasizing about stuffing LeBron James.
0: Well, I do do that. Yes, it's exactly (laughs) right. And, And you know what? They're both extremely healthy emotions. The problem is you just can't indulge them all the time. Sometimes you have to sit down to work. And after doing this now as a professional, this is my 54th year of teaching. There's only one way to begin writing. You know what that is? You sit down and you start typing. (laughs) I know it all is very difficult. I mean, if you sit there and kind of contemplate the universe, what happens is it gets larger and larger and you become more and more insignificant and you get nothing done. It doesn't work. So you just have to sort of dig in and understand that the first three sentences you're likely to be bad. But the moment you get the, uh, the juices flowing, then it can be extremely exciting to you. And I always like to say, um, you know, I don't mind if somebody watches me work because I'm often dancing and singing and doing all sorts of strange <laughs> things. Um, uh, but generally speaking, I don't think that's optimal
1: entertainment. Well, the other thing I think that makes you work as a writer, Richard, is you do have a keen eye for observations. Because you said something in your description there—the basketball players—which is really true. And I had never thought about it until I had a similar experience. I was in the airport in Philadelphia a couple years ago and was eating lunch while You're I was. So lucky. <laughs> while so I was lucky. I've been lost in that. That is a hard airport to navigate your way out of, by the way, John. I was um, I was eating lunch and I saw—I swear—out of the corner of my eye the shadow. Of this thing that looked larger than a human striding through the concourse. It was Dikembe Matumbo, who even by NBA standards oh. is pretty large <laughs> and has that distinctive voice. You know, the poor guy, there is nowhere he can go and be anonymous. But Richard said the gate, the gate is different. That was the thing I noticed. He went by through the concourse in about three steps. The sheer size of the guy, he was there and he was gone. But I will never forget. It's exactly as you guys described. Well, it's also the balance. So Richard, and, yeah. and the Richard, Richard Epstein is the Dikembe Mutombo <laughs> of the legal as, as we've long said. As we've long said. Okay, guys. We, um, we're going to do kind of a, a combo platter this episode. Because normally our August show is our annual audience Q&A installment. We didn't get to it this year because of some scheduling difficulties. By which I mean that COVID protocols made it very difficult for Richard to get back into the country after hitting the Brazilian foam party circuit. But we have a... There's no way you know what what that is, Richard. But we... I I don't know what that uh, is. That that I I doubt. But we have a bunch of great listener questions, and then I'll sprinkle some of my own in here on the the more topical stuff. Um, Let's start with this one. I am fascinated by some of the peculiarities of the new Texas abortion law that's been hugely controversial over the past few weeks. So just a review, the law prohibits most abortions after six weeks. But what's most novel about this, at least as regards abortion policy, is that the enforcement mechanism is a, essentially a, a private right of action. That is, individual citizens can bring suit against the doctor's the clinics who provide the abortion. Now you have a couple of suits now against this doctor in San Antonio who wrote an op-ed publicizing the fact that he was flouting the law. Both of the plaintiffs from out of state, both of them for that matter disbarred lawyers. And in at least one of these cases, it looks like the suit is actually being brought in the hopes that it will fail, that it'll lead to the law being overturned. Uh, Richard, I'll start with you. Can you walk us through why? You'd structure the law this way in the first place if you're a Texas legislator. And to what degree this unique construction is going to help or hinder the law as it goes through the courts?
0: Well, I mean, I should stay at the beginning. The brainchild behind this is Jonathan Mitchell, who was my excellent, superb, incredibly smart student, who had also been Solicitor General of the state of Texas. I think a lot of what's going on here has nothing to do with the short term mechanism. It's an effort to try to bring attention to the whole situation uh, in order to get somebody to look at the merits of Roe v. Wade with the eye to overturning it. And, And what's interesting about this discussion is that. At the most people, myself included, regard this as a very, very bizarre way of doing all of this stuff. I don't like private vigilantes bringing lawsuits um i think they ought to be done for the point of view of the government um, and i think in effect that it's likely to be struck down uh, and what you've indicated is yes this may even be collusive lawsuits is what you're saying right uh, the people who are bringing this hope to lose and then when they hope to lose the statute would be there but i think the effort has uh, been an amazing success on a different dimension it is that those conservative intellectuals who traditionally think that roe v wade ought to be overruled because it is essentially a not a constitutional opinion, but a series of confused preferences by Justice Harry Blackman. what they've done is they've been able to bring more attention to that. And I think that if you ask Jonathan or anybody else, they would happily sacrifice their procedural mess situation if, in fact, they could get the statute overruled on constitutional ground. And I think that's what this is all about. Um, I don't know of anybody who really thinks that this is an ideal way of doing business. There was this editorial by one of the Texas legislatures in the Wall Street Journal. And he said, um, somebody said, well, what happens if it turns out that California starts to unleash private attorney generals on some cause and New York does it on another? And his answer is, wait till tomorrow and you can figure that out, but don't bother me. That to me was the tip off that this scheme is not viable because if you generalize it beyond the case of abortion, uh, you're going to find that there are just too much vigilante justice and that the standing rules, although in many cases are overly strict this is a case in which they actually serve some useful function and that what you would like to do is to see somebody challenge the law because they've been arrested in performing something which essentially um is improper in one way or another the difficulty of course is if the abortions are legal, it's hard to bring a suit against them but one would like to see this done in the ordinary course of business rather than by these kinds of novel
2: procedural devices John, what's your reaction to this strategy? I think it's too clever by half. I mean, I think if you want to... Only half? Yeah, by half. 75%. <laughs> if you want to overrule Roe versus Wade and create a vehicle for doing that, why not just pass a state law that tries to change the date back to 12 weeks? Uh beyond which uh, abortions are prohibited. And the, so there's is two issues. One, and, and Richard's mentioned them before. You know, one is uh, I don't think this really, in the end, gets you out of uh, no state action. I think that's basically what uh, Mitchell and the drafters of the law are trying to do. Um, but it's, there are these cases involving racial covenants and um, housing contracts that uh, the Supreme Court has held. Were state action, even though they were just present in contracts between private people. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the test the court used there, but if that's still the law, then I don't think that uh, creating this and giving it to private enforcement is really going uh, really going to escape re- review. Then the, the second thing is, it, it, I you know, suppose it succeeds. Suppose that uh, Texas creates essentially a private cause of action is really what they've done to allow people to sue abortion providers, think about uh, what that opens the door to if you were a liberal. Um, I think liberals love the idea of uh, creating these kinds of laws which put enforcement uh, of public norms in the hands of private people. I mean, that's essentially what these huge class actions do is essentially what punitive damages do. I I think that actually in the long run, this really uh, creates real problems for, for conservatives.
1: From our member questions, we, we had a number of requests for you guys to weigh in on the more sweeping vaccine mandates from the Biden administration that were announced recently. So this this sweeps up not just government employees and contractors, but also via OSHA, employers who have over a uh, hundred employees. Their workers either have to get the vaccine or have to do weekly testing for the disease. Uh, John, using the regulatory apparatus here, using OSHA. Uh, if there's a challenge and this was the question that we got a lot what if an employer doesn't want to comply with this how how likely is this to
2: to hold up in court using that mechanism of going through osha mm. so i just actually ran, wrote a piece in uh, national review today out today actually this morning that goes through the vaccination mandate and mm, pointing out the various constitutional problems there are a bunch um one is whether the osha statute itself Even permits this. If you remember, OSHA is a law passed by Congress. It delegates to the president, the executive branch, the OSHA administration, the authority to try to uh, prevent hazardous working conditions or harmful working conditions. Uh, One thing to ask is: is a uh, virus, you know, a sickness that's just generally present in the population? uh, It's not really limited to workplaces. Is that really a working condition? So that's just one. Is this, does this even fall within the statute? And then um, the second thing is the government's trying to act in this emergency fashion, which requires not just that the original statute be satisfied, but that there be some kind of grave danger that's posed uh, to people in the workplace. Again, Right. This is a uh, disease that's generally prevalent in society. There's uh, vaccinations people can and cannot take for it. Um, especially like, is there a grave danger in workplaces where there's Zoom going on or where workplaces are doing other things like, uh, right, social distancing or masking or so on? So that's just like whether the statute itself. Reaches it, But then I think there are these constitutional problems which are uh, interesting. And in fact, maybe conservatives wouldn't be so unhappy if this gets litigated out because then there's a the question of whether the, you know, the OSHA law itself is consistent with the Commerce Clause, especially for businesses that are wholly within one state and are not crossing state lines or not selling things for export across state lines. There are these cases from the 1960s involving the Civil Rights Act, which gave an extraordinarily broad scope To the Commerce Clause, where basically anybody buying or selling anything that ever crossed the state line came within federal power. And conservatives, even under the Roberts Court, have been questioning um, these this kind of open ended reading of federal power. And so maybe this vaccine mandate actually provides the Roberts Court the opportunity to identify even sharper limits on how far the federal government can go in regulating the economy, especially when, especially as to businesses and uh personal proprietors that don't cross state boundaries.
1: Richard, do you want some reaction? Oh, me? yes. I'm waiting. I can, I can hear you champing at the bit.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm not going to talk so much about the authorization questions. I'm going to talk more about the vaccines and its relationship to various drugs. Now, this has been a source of, of deep concern to me for a very long period of time. And, and what they're doing, in effect, is they're saying this is a no brainer, ladies and gentlemen, the vaccines have been proven to be effective. Um, and if they work the first time, they're going to work the second time. And so you could only be an obst- basically an obstructionist to refuse to take these things, which is exactly the way that Biden does it. Now, this is really an extraordinary transformation. The great difficulty that one used to have with the FDA in dealing with many kinds of drugs is that it basically has a a preemptive strike saying these things have remote risks of serious conditions. We're not going to let them on the market because we don't think individual physicians and patients are going to be able to do this right. And that has been the position that is taken at this very day uh, by the FDA and the CDC and by Anthony Fauci on the question of whether or not you could use ivermectin, which is a drug that was originally started uh, for both humans and for animals for deworming parasites and so forth, but which in human dosages had an immense success, it seems, in dealing with these conditions in India and with the HCQ hydroxychloroquine, zinc and erythromycin um, as kinds of things. And we won't let those things on the market because the paternalists amongst them say they're too risky which I find to be extraordinarily odd because it turns out that these things have been used for a very long period of time myself came in the market about 25 or so years ago. Hydroxychloroquine was put on the market probably about 65, close to 70 years ago. And each of them is very uh, low risk on safety effects. That is, we have a huge experience about these things. And there seems to be, at least in some cases, good stuff about data. So that's the case in which I want the FDA model to change. And what I want that model to say is, Let this stuff go on the market and don't try to fight it. Uh, But if you start looking about what's going on, the FDA starts to disapprove. Uh, The Medicare payment systems are going to start to be screwed up with respect to this stuff. There are all sorts of potential sanctions against doctors. I think it's a very unhealthy situation not to use something like this uh, because what it does is it empowers choice and it gives you an effective alternative to the vaccine. Then when they get to the vaccine... Uh, there are serious risks associated with vaccine. Uh, the point here is not that they don't have effectiveness. Um, if you look at the initial round, most people decided to take it. Most people made the correct decision. Uh, but one of the things that's extremely difficult to understand in these cases is when you have some sort of adverse response, you don't know whether it's a response to the vaccine, perhaps it's just something else. And so you could easily treat some of these things that were vaccine-related as not being vaccine-related and understate the risk. In addition to that, there are two other very serious things for which you cannot test, Clinical trials, by definition, can only go from the beginning to the end of the trial. And so if you've tested something for a year, you have no idea whether or not this thing is going to have more adverse effects in two years. And even more important in this case, if you can show that one or even two doses are okay, it doesn't follow that the third dose may have greater potential harm and fewer benefits than the earlier one. So what's happening is you now, in effect, are so confident in your aggregate result that you're going to cut out the middleman because the old pattern of FDA governance was we put it out there and then there's a second level of filters, doctors, physicians, patients, and so forth. we see whether it's deployed. So they want to go from one extreme, you can't have it, to another extreme where you got to take it. And that leaves a lot of people extremely uneasy. And I do believe that this is going to suffer some degree of constitutional challenge on the autonomy ground. Um, And then the question is going to be, what's going to happen if somebody takes the third dose and then it is pretty conclusively established that there's an adverse consequence? Do we derail the program? Do we modify the program? Do we ignore the situation? Do we offer compensation and so on? I just think they're moving too hard and too fast. And that, in fact, if the program is as good as you'd think, uh, then employers families, parents, and so forth will want to adopt it. Uh, In some, I think the difficulties you have is we're moving too fast from one extreme where we don't let things on the market to another extreme where we make you take them. And that in general, rather than having prohibitions and mandates, I would rather have a larger dose of intermediate choice.
1: Okay, getting to specific listener questions. Most of these come from our listeners over at Ricochet, where the show started out 10 years ago. And uh, we do have a number of, of pandemic ones. So let me start there. And I'll, I'll throw this one to you, John, because this is something that you have written about. This is from Ricochet member Doug Kimball. Can U.S. citizens hurt by COVID sue the Chinese government for damages? Can countries join in this class action?
2: Yeah, I have written about this, about ways to try to hold China accountable legally for COVID. You know, right now, I don't really think there's a way to sue China, the government, uh, in you know, private lawsuit uh, because uh, countries have what's called foreign sovereign immunity, and so what would happen unless Congress were to pass an exception, which it always could, uh, and they have done so with regards to terrorism, with regards sometimes to property expropriation, and so on. But what would happen is if, say, you know, Joe Smith filed a lawsuit in California state court against China and said China was uh, negligent in controlling the outbreak and so led to the harms uh, for him or his family in California, China would uh, invoke this federal statute called the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act and say, we're immune from lawsuit. In American courts, and the case would get removed to federal court, and the federal court would probably dismiss it under this statute. Uh, the the really, I think the legal mechanisms to hold China accountable are not going to be through private lawsuits. They're going to be nation to nation. I think the United States government could try to do things to hold China accountable. So, for example, I, I mean, I floated some you know uh, you know out there ideas like canceling the Treasury debt that China holds, or saying we're going to collect on the debt that China issued before the communists took over and and then the Chinese government reneged on. Uh, So it would have to be things like that, something that the United States as a nation would do to China as a nation. I don't think lawsuits by private people have a lot of, uh, you know, much likelihood of success. Richard?
0: I think John is clearly right. Let me mention the other part of this. You bring a lawsuit and you say, oh, the Chinese did something. The first question is, what did they do? You're going to be a lot better off if you could establish, which at this point does not seem to be the case, that the Chinese deliberately concocted this thing in order to create a world pandemonium. Uh, There's been talk of that, but nothing that's close to proof. I think you're going to then have to fight the Yu Wuhan release story. Um, It may well be that you could win on that, or at least it's a jury question. But in every individual case on causation, it's going to be a nightmare. So one of the people who died was put into one of these nursing homes by Andrew Cuomo, who then released COVID-positive patients. Is that an intervening cause that sever's connection going back in these things? Somebody else doesn't wear a mask. Uh, Does that really count? There's a situation. And, And on and on it goes. So what happens is the individual suits have so many variations you can't do them. What John is saying has another way to rationalize it. Look, we know we've got a million of these cases and we know in effect that some of them are going to be pretty strong on causation and very weak on culpability of the plaintiff and others are going to be reversed, what we do is we got a million of these suits and we just kind of give everybody the average amount, not that we give it out individually, but we put it into the public treasury in order to eliminate all of those kinds of difficulties. Uh, that, I think, as a lawsuit would be viable, but I again think that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act would be taken in there, and having it go from government to government, it might be regarded as a cow's bell So I just don't think it's going to happen. I think what's going to happen if we start thinking that the gain of function resource was functioned by the United States and so forth, there'll be some domestic heads that might roll, including perhaps Anthony Fauci. Uh, but at this particular point in time, I just think that this is a, a fantasy and it proves once again that this thing will be treated more like an act of God rather than the creation of a sovereign nation, which probably bears a very heavy portion of the blame.
1: Here's an interesting question. This is from a member with the improbable handle of Bartholomew Xerxes Ogilvy Jr., which I, I'm sure yeah. is, is an invented name, but God, I hope not. Uh, he, I love the Xerxes. Xerxes is the only one that gets credit from me. Yeah, he's the Persian guy, right? Yeah, it's pretty good. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't mean enough Xerxes anymore. Uh, this is his question. A few weeks ago, President Biden acknowledged that the CDC's eviction moratorium was quote not likely to pass constitutional muster but allowed it to go ahead anyway. That got me wondering, is the presidential oath of office in which the president swears that he will preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution legally binding in any way or is it a mere ceremonial formality? And I'd note, gentlemen, when he asked this question, not the first time this has come up, right? We had during the Obama administration, the president swore blind for years that he couldn't do anything about immigration until he did. And in the interest of bipartisanship, I would note that my old boss, George W. Bush, famously said that he didn't think that McCain-Feingold was probably constitutional right before he signed it into law. So not the first time this question has come up. Uh, Richard, what's your reaction to it? Well, in this
0: particular case, um, I actually think it's extremely uh, troublesome. Uh, The kind of thing that you're talking about are signing statements. I was just actually teaching one of them today. Um, What happens is that you want to have a statute that's going to basically give Congress an extensive control over uh, foreign affairs. And President Bush says, no, you can't do this, because what you're trying to do in putting these wars into place is taking away That belong exclusively to the executive. And I think where there is a genuine conflict over where executive power begins after legislative power falls off, nobody's going to think in terms of impeachment. They're going to think of this as one of these constant struggles between two branches under a constitution which doesn't have sufficient depth to deal with all these questions in full. But what Biden says is he's not doing that argument. He says, I just know that this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyhow because I think I could get away with it. Well, he does have an oath to take care that the law be faithfully executed. You could treat this as though it's an open admission that he's going to make sure that it's going to be mangled to the extent possible. And then you ask yourself, is a deliberate violation of a known law a high crime or misdemeanor? And all of a sudden you're starting to think impeachment. Now, nobody has even come remotely close to mentioning that under these circumstances, but what you want to do is to say, are we really right to put it off the table? Just think of it the following way. Uh, You get all sorts of other mandates that come forward on topics that are perhaps uh, more or less uh, controversial on these things, and Congress says, you shall do this, and the president says, I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it, and I know it's illegal. It's one thing to say I'm not going to do it because I can test its legality, but it's another thing to do is saying I know that it's legal and I'm still not going to do it. And so I would hope he pays some kind of a political price for this. But as best I can tell, what has happened thus far on this particular issue is we continue to debate at great length whether or not the moratorium is a good or bad thing, worrying about the dislocation of tenants against the dislocations associated with the landlords on these cases. But I don't think anybody has bumped it up to a constitutional level. I actually believe that the case on this issue is more troublesome than Than the rather blasé um, attitude that
1: one sees in the press at large.
2: John, what about
1: you? Preserve, protect, and defend—just words on parchment?
2: No, I don't think so. I think presidents used to take that oath very seriously, and it also combines with the "take care" clause. And I think that's really the clause that does most of the work. Uh, You know, the president uh, takes not just takes an oath, which, mind you, the other members, or right, the members of Congress and the court also take, uh, as well as federal employees, but it's that the president has this special obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. That doesn't mean that the president always has to agree with the Supreme Court. I mean, uh, if the president, you know, in good faith, believes that the Constitution and the federal laws mean something different than what the courts mean, then he's, I think, entitled to use uh, the powers within the executive branch to try to advance his vision. I mean, this is also the view that presidents had long had until I'd say about hmm, the last 50 or 60 years uh, when presidents started, you know, sort of deferring to the Supreme Court on questions of constitutional law. Uh, in the beginnings of our republic, I think all the way through to FDR, that is not the position that uh, important presidents took. Um, and so I think, but I don't think that's the case here because I don't think Biden himself thought uh, that the rent eviction moratorium was legal or constitutional, right? He he basically said this, admitted as much. Uh, and so I think actually what Biden did was the worst of all possible worlds is that he uh, tried to, I think, invoke this uh, uh, really uh, important, but should, I think, be rarely used presidential power to interpret the Constitution at odds with the court's. And then invoked it. I think for uh, invoked it in, in bad faith, which means that he's, you know, that it's going to risk a narrowing presidential power in the end, when all the other branches and elements of the government reject it, as as they have.
1: I want to take you guys from this question about presidential overreach to a question about (laughs) presidential underreach. Uh, A couple of questions actually that were paired. The first one is not explicitly about immigration, but I'm assuming that's the subtext. This is from a member with the handle Old Bethos, who asks, uh, is there any limit to a president's discretion not to enforce a law Is there a legal difference between doing nothing and formally directing agencies to stop doing their mission? We had another member, Brian Watt, who asked, uh, can Texas sue the federal government and specifically the executive branch for circumventing standing immigration law? So similar idea at work in both of these places. Is there any legal mechanism by which when the executive branch sort of abandons their post on a core responsibility – they can be held accountable. John, I'll start with you on this one.
0: Good luck, Johnny boy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This was was interesting. This was um, something uh, that came up right with the, the deferred action for children and then the the, the parents program under the Obama administration. Uh, And so you would have thought, Well, two things. One is there's this thing called prosecutorial discretion. And so presidents don't have to enforce every federal law 100 percent against all violators. Uh, In fact, that would be impossible uh, as to all the federal laws. It might be impossible as to any even a single federal law to fully enforce it against all violators all the time. Uh, Presidents have to uh, make uh, decisions about how to allocate those resources, uh, limited prosecutorial resources. And the courts have recognized that. at the same time, I think the courts have also recognized, uh, and I think it's not just because the judicial decision, I think it's just part of, again, that take care clause responsibility. The president can't just say, I'm going to use my discretion to not enforce a law at all, to make it zero enforcement, because that would be, you know, not because I think the law is unconstitutional or not because, uh, I, but only because I disagree with the policy of the law. I think to do that would actually be to violate the take care clause responsibility. So the problem you know, this is why Richard's teasing me is because, well, you know, where in there is the line? And uh, I mean, part of the problem is that the courts would have a hard time identifying line. They have issued some decisions uh, suggesting that the president does have to fulfill legal obligation. And I, there's a lot of the reasoning I care for, but the, the most notable Supreme Court opinion was uh, during the Bush years, I think it's probably Troy's fault, uh, when the Bush administration <laughs> didn't want to issue a regulation under the Clean Air Act about global warming. Uh, I actually thought the president did have that discretion not to do so. But the Supreme Court, in a case called you know Massachusetts versus EPA, basically ordered the Bush administration to... Go forward and start the rule, you know, start issuing a rule about global warming under the Clean Air Act and that you couldn't claim prosecutorial discretion to say we weren't gonna do it. So the under the logic of that, I think that there is some limit even imposed by the courts. But personally, I think the better limit is um, political, you know, that this is something, um, that can be raised in the political process. Congress, of course, can play an important oversight role. That's usually where you see claims of lack of enforcement come forward. And then, uh, eventually elections. And I think, I do think that that harmed Obama and harmed Hillary Clinton was that their administration didn't enforce, uh, the immigration laws, uh, as to, I think it was eight or 9 million cases. Uh, And I think that's the better solution.
0: Uh, To go back to Massachusetts against the EPA, um, the position of the Bush administration, which I thought was correct, was that you could not credibly claim under the original interpretation of the statute that carbon dioxide counted as a pollutant when at lower levels it's essential for the preservation of life on the planet. And that if you then looked about this as against every other chemical that was called to be a pollutant, it was so clearly far apart from them that it was a mistake if you then tried to figure out how much of this particular pollutant would trigger a reaction. If you use the standard numbers, every individual is a source of pollutant and a major source because we all toss out about two tons of carbon dioxide a year. And if you did that with respect to sulfuric acid, it's going to be a very different world. And the Bush administration never did anything. What really was important about that case is it meant that the Obama administration, when it came in in 2009, could then issue its particular diktats, uh, indicating that now that we regard carbon dioxide as a pollutant, these are the kinds of steps that we're going to try to do to deal with it in the name of global warming. And, and so in a sense, the effort to force people to do it was not successful. What was successful was it gave uh, larger That a more uh, sympathetic president gave to that particular mandate. In general, I think there is this very, very serious question, uh, which is the Constitution works pretty darn well when it comes to giving individuals standing and rights to block something that the government wants to do to walk over them. It's a little bit trickier when they have a collective asset like a park and somebody wants to build in it. Who gets standing on behalf of the public at large? Very similar to the kinds of questions that you have. For example, when corporations want to bring derivative actions against people who get benefits out of dealing with the corporation, it's kind of tricky to do. And that's the kind of problem that you have here. The beneficiaries of these programs are not going to sue. And then who is going to have standing to tell the federal government that it has to stop giving these kinds of things away. And the reason it becomes a political situation is it's just very difficult to figure out who that is. There could be either everybody or nobody. It becomes a a kind of a difficult, difficult choice. And so what happens is it becomes a following situation. Either use a political remedy on the one hand, which we don't like, or we use an impeachment remedy of deviation, high crimes and misdemeanors and so forth, which we tend to like even less because the last thing everybody wants to do, I would hope, is to be normalized, the uh, uh, impeachment process so that we regard it as a routine part of day-to-day governance in the United States. So I think the answer to this particular question at the end is that uh, nothing much is going to happen. And we're going to start to see complications because there's no question when the Biden administration starts to put forward on various kinds of mandates on coal and so forth, the traditional models will allow people to attack the efforts to use coercion. But those particular models won't work so well when it comes to the effort to use subsidies.
1: Okay, the last sort of topical question I'll give you guys, and then we'll go to some of the sort of grab bag ones that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, We have this case, of course, coming up in a couple of months in front of the Supreme Court of Mississippi, the abortion case, which inspired a member with the handle Chuck (laughs) to ask pointedly, does anybody believe Roberts might vote against Roe v. Wade? Now, we we have talked about before this, this sort of popular notion that Chief Justice Roberts is always sitting there with a slide rule, trying to come up with the, the ruling. But I'll expand this out for you guys, if I may, with Chuck's indulgence a little bit. We don't fully know where a Justice Kavanaugh would be. We People seem to think they know where a Justice Barrett would be. How much, and John, I'll start with you, how much uncertainty – is built into the way that this court and specifically these six Republican appointees are going to handle a case like this.
2: I think that's a great point, Troy. And I don't think it's uh, obvious one way or the other which way Chief Justice Roberts will go. Uh, I I can make a guess, which I'll share. But I think uh, one thing is that we don't know yet what Kavanaugh or uh, Barrett will do on abortion. They've both written opinions about Um, star decisis, right? The principle that you should follow past precedent. Uh, and then what do you do when you think that precedent is wrong? You know, at what point do you stop paying deference to the justices and the courts of the past? Uh, and so, uh, I can't say either of them, uh, would for sure strike down Roe versus Wade in this Mississippi case or not. Um, it may be, uh, the case that both of them will, uh, could. Um, uphold or strike down the Mississippi law without calling into question the fundamental principle of Roe. Uh, If you look at the years before Casey itself, the years between Roe and Casey, particularly when uh, president Reagan had added justices O'Connor, Scalia and Kennedy to the bench, a lot of people thought Roe versus Wade's days were numbered. And there were a bunch of cases where uh, the court upheld restrictions on abortion. Uh, but it was an incremental way, and those justices didn't, in the end, go and overthrow Roe. In fact, they upheld it, in Casey, I think, much to the surprise of a lot of court watchers back then. I think you could see a similar thing happen now. I And, I think, and this is, goes to my prediction. If I were to try to predict what Chief Justice Roberts is going to do, is that he's going to try to uh, persuade Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett Uh, to put off the decision on whether to overrule Roe, maybe uphold or strike down uh, the Mississippi regulation, but say, let's do it in a step-by-step way and let's put off for the future any squarey consideration of Casey, because that would be kind of keeping with Robert's, you know, sort of incrementalism, his desire to avoid, uh, you know, political blockbuster cases that put the court right in the middle of the political... You know political controversy of the day, and you know and I'm just projecting from his you know he had this opinion in this Texas abortion case uh I guess it was was it just two years ago now where he could have um voted continued to vote to um, uphold some fairly tough restrictions on abortion. Um, but he lost in that earlier case. And so in this Texas case, rather than say, I'm sticking to what I said last time, he actually voted against his earlier views and said, but in the name of stare decisis, I'm going to strike down the uh, the Texas abortion restrictions, which I thought was really surprising. I actually thought his opinion didn't make a lot of sense, but it is a sign of what he would do.
0: Well, I think he's an internal incrementalist. Um, you're talking about the whole woman's health care case. And I do think it was correct to argue that if, in fact, Roe is correct, then the level of burden that was put in those cases upon women trying to get abortions within the state of Texas was undue. So if you're not going to put Roe on the table and you would ask me which way to vote, I would have voted essentially to strike down the restrictions. Even though when I first wrote about Roe v. Wade back in 1973-74, I was deeply. Critical of everything that it stood for. I think there's a kind of a paradox in this particular case. Um, If, in fact, we believe that you overrule Roe and every state in the union is going to basically adopt it by legislation, then it ceases to be a really difficult problem. In fact, the argument is let's overrule this thing because we think that all of those people who said that judicial usurpation was the problem with Roe will become silent when it's constitutionally improved. And in this regard, I believe there is a statute that was passed in New York, which says in the event that Roe is overruled, we are going to restore it by a statute which is going to say the laws that existed under Roe v. Wade is the law of New York State. And that's one huge place. The question is whether or not women in other states could take advantage of the law. I think would be an interesting and very difficult question, which would ultimately be yes, if they could get there, I, I think it would be there. But if every state did this, then you would want it to be overruled. But many states are going to decide the other way around. um I think it's pretty clear that they're three and three at the ends i I'm, I suspect Alito thomas uh and Gorsuch would rule to overrule although Gorsuch is always sufficiently idiosyncratic that you can never be quite sure what he's going to do take a case like Bostock when it had to do with uh, gay and transgender rights with respect to title 7 and title 9 so i think in effect it's likely that it's going to be A tricky kind of a situation. But on balance, my guess is they're going to punt and it will probably be 5-4 to to uphold it. Um, And I think, in fact, if I were the Republican Party, I would be thrilled at that particular result uh, because, in effect, once you put that particular result on the table, it means that you're not going to have a political situation where your conservative intellectuals and your economic liberals are going to find themselves at loggerheads with one another. Uh, Roe going into the political situation if it's prolonged, will only help the Democrats.
1: Okay, let me ask you some of the sort of uh, miscellaneous questions that we have. This one from a member named Mark Alexander who asks, is there any hope of a constitutional convention of the states being called? This is something that was really sort of getting a lot of attention, at least in certain conservative circles, probably about a decade ago, sort of in in the peak of the Tea Party uh, moment, the, the Article 5 Convention of the States. I haven't heard as much about it recently, but they did have a a large number of legislatures that had filed the bill. They were close to the threshold they needed to to trigger this. So um, I will ask you both his question and, of course, the additional one it implies. Is this a good idea? John, I'll
2: start with you. Good luck, John. You know, I. <laughs> <laughs> Richard's really happy. That's my new I mantra. Yeah, he's first. He's, you're giving him all the easy questions, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, You know, I remember this, as you said, I remember this, Troy, from the. Uh, days of the tea party and then you might remember there were there was also talk about this uh at the time of the balanced budget amendment in the 1980s i mean when deficits were running in the tens of billions of dollars (laughs) you know wildly threatening the economy (laughs) um so uh, one uh I don't think it has much political choice, chance, although there's a scholar, a, prof- a friend of mine uh, named uh, Mike Paulson, who used to be at University of Minnesota, is now St. Thomas, who claims that there actually have been enough votes by the states that call for a convention to actually require it because he went back and counted every time a state had called for a, a convention and then not retracted the um, request. According to him, there's enough states I've already asked for it. But- uh, so is this sort of
1: like the Equal Rights Amendment thing where yes, we have exactly. to figure out how long it's binding? Yeah, his
2: argument is once you ask for one, it's good. And, but he actually right, says states okay. haven't retracted them. They just sit there for decades and decades and no one notices. Um, but yeah, So that's interesting. I'm not sure what to think of that. He loses on that. <laughs> but the second point is I, I think uh, conservatives should not want a constitutional convention uh, because what do you think is going to happen in a constitutional convention? I bet a lot of the Uh, sort of anti-democratic, if you want to call them that features or stabilizers on majority, pure majoritarian democracy that our constitution has could easily be done away with. I mean, uh, not just the electoral college, but the Senate. I mean, or maybe judicial review, uh, maybe the limits on federal power. Uh, you know, if you're a conservative and you think that having a limited national government is a good idea and that most issues in life should be handled by the states, uh, I'm not so convinced that a majority of the delegates sent to a constitutional convention to agree with that uh, that's that's one and then the second thing is the other thing about it i mean sort of conservatives uh, you know once you start uh, disassembling institutions you have no idea what's going to happen you know what's that famous line like um some famous conservative said uh when you're walking around in the outdoors and you come across a fence you don't know why it's there but Somebody priced for a good Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And that's sort of my attitude: is like, uh, you know, the country's done, I think, extraordinarily well with this constitution. Why should we tamper with it? Even though we may have all kinds of complaints about it. Uh, once you start saying we're going to tinker around with this or that and remove things or add things, you have no idea about the unintended consequences this is going to cause elsewhere. So the conservative me just let's leave well enough alone and just work within the framework that we have because we've done pretty well with it. Look at all the other countries around the world, our peer countries and all the monkeying around they've done with their constitutions and all the terrible results that they've had over the last hundred years.
1: Richard?
0: Yes, yeah, I agree completely with John on this question. The real risk here is you call the convention and somebody else dominates it. And we've never had any experience on how these things would work with amendments, changes, ratifications. My own view is that Paulson is clearly wrong if he assumes that when you approve of one of these things, it's an infinite offer. I would apply the common law rule that any offer is only open for a reasonable period of time, which would be, I would think, under these circumstances in the order of one to two years. Years, a term of the sentence, so forth, and I would say that you would have to start over on this, and I'm dreadfully opposed to it uh, at this particular point. Uh, the progressive forces are far more powerful, and if they could get to do something, you could see all the property and speech protections going to pieces, and that all the budget authorization protections going down the road, and you could see all sorts of you know affirmative government duties to eliminate all last traces of racism and things like that being put into a constitution. So. I think that what we want to do is to just keep it this way and figure out what's going to happen. Uh, my own view is I don't think they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade at this particular point in time for the simple reason that it's been around for long enough and there's enough popular support. Um, I do think, in effect, that the issue is going to continue to be a political one, but we've lived with it for 49 years. We'll live with it for the rest of the time. My hope at this particular point in time is to get out of the constitutional visionary situation. I don't want to see the creation of 14 new states. I don't want to see the expansion of the United States Supreme Court. There are all sorts of things that I don't want to see. And I think one of the ways to do this is to try to keep things on a relatively low and modest situation rather than by doing it
1: on a much more dramatic. You're just looking at the downside, 14 new states. But upside, we could maybe get rid of Delaware. No, you Uh, you can't do
0: that. You could divide it in two.
1: It'd be a, it'd be, a, it'd be a real problem for corporate know, law. This, you know, actually. It mer- merge it into Pennsylvania, which
2: is what it is anyway.
1: Is it still the case? For a long time, it was the case that Delaware was the only state in the union that did not have a commercial airport. You actually had to fly into Philadelphia to get to
2: Delaware. There is an, I mean, there is an airport in Delaware. Well, and that's, that's it takes maybe 40 Wilmington to drive through the whole place. Maybe Wilmington. They. Um, and- driving my, my, my I add, at 85 miles an hour and throwing McDonald's wrappers out the window. <laughs>
1: can I, can I tell you guys, just as an aside, I hope I haven't told this story before, but when I was at the Manhattan Institute, we had a, a fellow and I was talking to him one day about the trip on the Acela, which stops in Wilmington, Delaware at the Joe Biden train station. And I told him, I said, one of my favorite parts of that trip is just sitting there when the train pulls into that station and watching nobody get on because it exists for the sake of Joe Biden. I said, watch when you go tomorrow. And he texted me, me when he was there. And he said, you're wrong. There's all kinds of people getting on the train. And then 90 seconds later, he texted me again and said, never mind. It was Jill Biden and her staff. <laughs> 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 all right. We have a um, a legal history question here, which is nice. We don't get these very often. It's from Ricochet member Gary Robbins, who wants to know where you guys rank John Marshall Harlan in the pantheon of Supreme Court justices. He notes that he is still blown away by his Descent in Plessy. Richard, uh, I'll have you start, but for the, the non-legal historians in the audience, can you just explain Justice Harlan and his significance to start us off?
0: Yeah, well, Justice Harlan is a very interesting figure. Um, he was basically served on the court from, I guess it was the late 1870s or the early 1880s through about 1909, 1910, and so forth. Um, he is most known for his prophetic descent in the Plessy v. Ferguson, which announced the colorblind principle in an effort to stop the deadly troika, uh, segregated schools on the one hand, uh, integrated, uh, segregated transportation uh, systems that you're trying to do and anti-miscegenation laws. Um, He was, in effect, a a kind of a part-time libertarian. So The areas on which he's most famous for have to do with the intersection of government regulation with the modern economy. And uh, in one of his more notable opinions towards the end of his career, uh, which is a case called the Dare Against the United States... What he held is that uh, firms were protected against mandatory collective bargaining, in this case on the federal railroads, uh, which is a kind of a strong freedom of contract opinion. But in many other cases, including something called the oleo-margarine cases, he did say that the fairly broad construction of what health and safety were, so as to give government regulation, that then was translated into his famous uh, dissent, not the Holmes dissent, but the Harlan dissent in Lochner against New York, where he said, Look, I mean, I certainly believe that the government cannot interfere with labor matters, but this is a health matter. And then he goes into the exhaustive history about the various conditions associated with works and bakeries and things of that particular sort. Um, I think in the end, his one shining moment will dominate everything else. There was another case called Cummings, which he decided a couple of years later, which had a very different tone. It said that if a state had only insufficient funds to keep all of its schools open, it could shut, I think it was, the Girls' schools uh, for black children only—a very different kind of tone. Uh, but he was, generally speaking, a kind of a moderate libertarian, and I would think that most people would probably rank him in the upper tier of judges. But I don't think they would put him as one of the very greatest ones. He's not John Mar. He's not John Marshall. He's John Marshall Hall. Would be another way of doing it. And on his own court, he was probably overshadowed by the ever so famous uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes.
2: John, anything to add about Justice Harlan? I mean, of course, because of his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson and civil rights cases. I mean, I think he he didn't have to write any other opinions after that uh, to be considered a great justice. But I um, I actually was interested in him. I uh, sort of did a little research on him about him once about what he did before he was on the Supreme Court. And if I remember correctly, he was from uh, Kentucky, but was a, um, you know, was part of the Kentucky that went with the Union. And I think he fought at several important battles during the Civil War itself. I mean, well, he never, I don't think himself ever made a big deal of this, but he was, uh, you know, he was a, a real veteran of combat in the Civil War um, before he got I think really involved in politics. Uh, I think he became like Attorney General in Kentucky, and then uh, became a supporter of Reconstruction uh, policies, a supporter of Grant, and then uh, and so on. So I always thought he was actually really interesting, just as a as a you know a figure, uh, a historical figure, rather than just I mean for what he'll always be remembered for, which is his descent in Dred Scott. Which I think I can't Not Dred Scott. you mean, a lot of Fuzzy people, B. Ferguson. I'm sorry, Plessy. Yeah, a lot of people don't actually read the dissent in Plessy, but it's really an amazing opinion. I mean, it's really uh, just remarkably well uh, written. And it's, it's just rather, uh, you know, emotional, but also I think right, just just right on the law.
1: But before I get to the last question, Richard, do you know when Justice Harlan died, who replaced him on the court?
0: Um, It was Malin Pitney.
1: It was your boy, Malin Pitney. <laughs> what who Pitney? Who Richard's favorite Supreme Court justice? Or tied, right? Well, One of two. let's put it this way: He's in, in- Pitney.
2: Why Pit- Pitney? Why I know we've talked about him before, <laughs> but I still don't understand why Pitney.
0: Well, I mean, he wrote many great opinions, I think is the explanation. He was the one who wrote Coppage v. Kansas. He he wrote very good opinions on water law. The Crest case was extremely good. He wrote the international sure, case, the the INS case. I mean, uh, he wrote the, the duplex and type situation. He wrote the draft case. He wrote the Yellow Dog contract case. I mean, um, he... When he was on the uh, Court of Appeals, the Equitable Court in New Jersey, he wrote some really sublime water law opinions. Um, he was a very famous and very able man. But I do know he was done. It was appointed by uh, it was Justice uh, President Taft, right? Yep, who then that's right. later did that. And he basically served to about 1922 when he left the court. His birth date and death date, I think, in the same years as another guy from New Jersey known as Woodrow Wilson.
1: Is that right? That I didn't know. Um, I think it's
0: 1856 to 1924, something like that. Very close for both of them.
1: The last question that I'll offer up you guys is really interesting. So every year when we do this, we tend to get some variation on if you could change the constitution, what would you do? This is the first time we've ever had this question. If you had, this is from a member with the handle Lost in Thought. If you had an opportunity to change the Declaration of Independence and this change magically appeared on the original declaration and all subsequent copies. Would you make a change? And if so, what would the change be? I'm going to start with Richard because I am deep enough in Richard Epstein's head that I know what his answer to this is.
0: Uh, you're going to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness should be added there and private property somewhere along the line.
1: Oh, no, that was not my guess. I remember you not liking the preamble.
0: Oh, nature and nature God. We the people. Oh, no, that's the Constitution,
2: boy chick. What am I doing? What does Boychik mean, by the way? There's a place <laughs> in Berkeley called Boychik's Bagel. <laughs>
0: Boychik is Yiddish for, for little boy, and you do it when somebody uh-huh. makes a howler of mistake at the end of the hour. Uh, the point you're mentioning about the Constitution is Senate? Um, is that we the I'm people... Sorry. I'm
1: sorry, you're totally right. I transposed it in my head.
0: Um, we the people was originally we the undersigned delegates. Right. And when you transferred it meant that essentially the states were reduced in this role of intermediary. And when you try later on and look at some cases that deal with the scope of federal power, they refer to the preamble as establishing that direct relationship. But that's not what happened in the declaration. Yeah.
1: So give me your answer for the declaration.
0: Well, I told you the pursuit of happiness as opposed to property uh, was, in fact, a very delicate kind of compromise, and in part because he, I don't think Jefferson wanted to make slavery, which was property, part of the basic constitution. But that's it. Anyhow,
1: that's my last thoughts for the day. John, would you would you make any changes to the Declaration of Independence?
2: You know, I'm trying to look at the, the, the more minor ones towards the end, you know, because most of it is, you know, a laundry list of just right. – the bad things that King George III did, and so I don't. I'm wondering whether it's the exact um, language. Remember, there's. I'm trying to remember. Wasn't there a part of it like appeal to Canada? So of course, that part I don't want in there anymore. We don't want the Canadians. But remember, they wanted you because know, they used to want the Canadians to actually rebel too, along <laughs> with them. And it's always just been language in the early. Uh, national colonial periods about the commonalities between the American colonies and the British. Because if you think about it, right, from before 1776, they wouldn't have thought of them really as as the American colonies and the Canadian colonies. They were just all British North America. And it was always weird that Canada went off with the... But I think that's one of the best things that ever happened to us is that we didn't get the Canadians involved here in part of the United States. <laughs> I mean, who knows? We'd, probably have, we'd have mandatory university health care and no military, and God, and Trudeau would be president. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> um, so I was thinking, like, how could you excise that part? But, you know, the um, the only other thing about the um, declaration is that, you know, it's really, it's, it's the odd thing about it is that it's really, it's, you know, and remember it for this is, kind of written as an attack on King George III. Uh, and it's really, when you go back and look at the history of it, it's really Parliament um, that really did all these terrible things to the colonies. You know, even by this time, I think King George III is really not you know, directly setting uh, the policy. And it's not really necessarily King George III who, although, you know, there's, I think people, I mean, there's, I think the, there's a book out now. Isn't there something called like The Last King of America or something that's about King George III that someone's writing or about to publish? And I think, you know, King George III did want to keep the colonies as part of the, you, you know, the British Empire. And I think maybe he was in favor of a sort of harsh, of sort of harsh measures. But all of these steps that were taken, you know, that, Caused the revolution were really the acts of Parliament. It's not really King George the monarch who is imposing them.
1: All right, fellas. Well, I'm going to go back and read the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence side by side to drill that back into my head. In my defense, I've been doing whippets for the first 45 minutes of the show. Uh, my 45 th- minutes, or
2: <laughs> don't you want to measure that in years?
1: <laughs> My thanks, as always, to you both, to our producer, Scott Emmerich, and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and write the show wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed.